I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccines, Premier James Bond cast. I'm Jack Eason, I'm joined by Jake Trapilla. How are you doing, Jake? Hey, Jack, I'm doing alright. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Another another day, another dollar, because we get paid for this, right? That's right. This is our highest grossing podcast. For sure, absolutely. Uh, and Just we, like the movies we watch. That's right. <laughs> uh, we get we get a cut of all those box office figures that we give out. That's that's just part of our deal. So um, that's right. Yeah, we got a, we got a good episode ahead of you. We're going to be talking about live and let die. Um, but before we get to that, we have a very special guest. Adam Myros is joining us for the first time. How you doing, Adam? Yeah, uh, I'm doing well. Uh, as proprietor of Optimism Vaccine, I can verify that you are indeed uh, not getting paid for any of this. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Peek well, behind the curtain much, huh? Uh, okay, well, I mean, I guess we're going to cut this episode short then because, well, okay. So, uh, so be it. We'll continue. We're professionals, uh, non-paid professionals. So, um, uh, I was just going to say, Adam, how do you how do you feel about James Bond? Where did you get in on this? Are you are you a fan, long time fan? You just kind of dip your toe in now and then. I am not a long time fan. I'm I'm pretty much a Bond novice. Uh, you guys have Ooh. kind of inspired me a bit to maybe look at some of these, but uh, no, I've I've really probably seen maybe five of them in my lifetime. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, yeah there's a lot more than that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mainly the Daniel Craig stuff, uh, but you know I've seen a few Brosnans, uh, but that's that's about it. That's fair. All right. Well, yeah. So this uh, is, was this your first uh, Roger Moore experience? Uh, this was my first Roger Moore experience. Yeah. Uh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, what a way to start, huh? Right, right. Yeah, I, I've mainly am, am guessing due to the presence of, of one of my personal favorites, Yafit Kato, and uh, we're going. I figured, ah, eh, this would be a good excuse to jump in. For sure, absolutely. Well, we're going to jump in in just a second. Just wanted to give a shout out before we get into the the main event to the late Eunice Gason, who passed recently. Who, mm-hmm. if you've been keeping up track with this podcast, we're big fans of her here. She played, of course, Sylvia Trench in the first two Bond films, in Dr. No and From Russia With Love. Uh, recurring, she has the honor of being the first Bond girl. She passed away recently at the age of 90, but um, Sylvia Trench will remain forever entrenched in our hearts. Uh, as, honestly, the only woman in James Bond history who's probably hornier than James Bond which is a, remar- yeah. a remarkable feat, um, honestly. And, and a, lot, a lot of people remember that, of course, the iconic introductory line of, of the name's Bond, James Bond, was him responding in kind to her introduction of the name's Trench, Sylvia Trench. Uh, honestly, she got in her own series of films. She was great. Uh, but yeah. in any case... Sure we missed. Yeah, a shout-out from, from the fans. She 90 years is pretty good innings, but... Uh, Pour, pour one out for Eunice Gason as you as you listen to this one, uh, and and maybe pop on from Russia with love or Doctor No when you're done, just to relive the good memories. But anyway, that's that's our our little ode to to James Bond fandom. 
So we're going to jump right in uh, for a like, live and let die. This is, of course, the first Roger Moore James Bond. This was a, a big shift in the series. Um, and, well, it's it's kind of crazy. I suppose we, we should discuss just before this. There always seems to be the discussion of who was going to be James Bond. United mm-hmm. Artists were pushing for an American with Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, Burt Reynolds, all people you could absolutely never fathom being James Bond were all put out there. Um, Broccoli and Eon Productions kind of held fast. They wanted a British actor, which honestly made sense. A lot of the American actors turned the role down because they're like, oh, I think he should be British. So not that half the actors who played James Bond were actually English in the first place, but uh, from from the colonies and so on. So... um, they eventually settled on Roger Moore. Uh, they tried to offer Sean Connery, I think it was over $5 million to return, which is funny money uh, in the, the early 70s. Actors weren't paid that much. That just didn't happen. And he turned it down. So Roger Moore, who'd been on the cards before, eventually became the James Bond. Uh, and Jake, what, what are your thoughts generally on, on the Roger Moore era? How, how does he batch up? What's your first impressions? Uh, well, uh, I am a longtime fan of Roger Moore. Uh, I love how fun he is, how fun his films can be, even though uh, they're probably objectively some of the worst films in the entire series. <laughs> but uh, I, he's always game to go along with any crazy scenario, whether it's dressing up like a clown or riding a, 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 an aircraft through Venice. Um, yeah, Roger Moore is, uh, he's not my favorite Bond by any means, and I think if you ask a lot of people today, uh, he's a pretty polarizing uh, choice for Bond because uh, some people will say, oh, he's the absolute worst, he, he did all these shitty movies, and he's not funny and whatever, but uh, some people have a really uh, endearing affection towards Roger Moore. Roger Moore is just, he's just, he's just here to have a good time and he's eager to please, um, but he's not very muggy or get in your face about it. He's has just the right amount of subtlety, I think, to pull off a lot of what he does. And uh, rewatching Live and Let Die, I forgot how young he once looked. Because <laughs> looked being the operative word there, exactly. Because when another thing people say about Roger Moore and give him a hard time is they say he's the old one. He looks too old, and that's eventually why he quits. But uh, he looks very nice and youthful in Live and Let Die, and I would say it's his best appearance as well as far as his fashion goes. Something that we haven't really touched upon in the series, True. but. Uh, yeah, I like Roger Moore, and uh, depending on where you sit, Jack, this will be either the longest or shortest seven months of your life. <laughs> yeah, we do got a lot to, to go through here. Uh, no, Roger Moore is honestly, he's James Bond mostly I grew up with, so I, I, I have an affinity for Roger Moore, certainly. Adam, it must yeah. be it must be strange for you, go, particularly from Daniel Craig, going <laughs> back to back to Roger Moore. That That's a bit of a seismic shift in your James Bond uh model uh yeah that is true i mean i i'm not familiar with moore's output uh, and he he does seem like uh, not that i didn't enjoy this movie but i tend to think i'll i'd probably be in the camp that would call him the worst just uh due to my familiarity with the other actors who portrayed him and uh they all have a certain uh, debonair quality whereas roger moore just kind of feels like kind of an old dude <laughs> 
<laughs> he was 45 when on around 45 in the shoot of this which he was older than Sean Connery I mean it's it's a kind of baffling decision in one way that they went with Roger Moore they had so many actors lined up and they went for someone who was f- about four years older than Sean Connery at this point or I, I, maybe yeah, about three years older than him yeah, I believe he's three years older, but it's interesting if you look at three year older than Connery, Roger Moore in this film looks much better than Sean Connery in Diamonds Are Forever, who at some points looks like death. <laughs> well, we, we as we covered, he is rough. Yeah, as we dis- as we discussed, uh, he Sean Connery really like Diamonds Are Forever was a side gig to what he was doing at that point. He was pretty much living the Vegas lifestyle. So, um, you know, who could blame him? So, so as an uh, aside, yeah. did, did Connery turn down $5 million in order to make Zardoz? Because that seems like the time frame. <laughs> well, he, he turned down Bond, but had basically been typecast into that sort of role. So he was actually having difficulty looking for work. Which is why John Borman was able to hire him for such a small rate to do Zardoz. He was Connery at that point was basically like, okay, fine, I'll do anything. There, there, he will put on a red diaper and he will <laughs> save the world. <laughs> I gotta say, based, based on based on James Bond style to Zardoz, that must have been a difficult transition <laughs> for, for Connery. Yeah. Jeez, but uh, yeah, Zardoz, that's uh, that's yeah. something for another day. Live and Let Die is, honestly, you know, we talk about campy James Bond, but, you know, if we set the bar at Zardoz level, this is a pretty straight shooter we got right here. Oh, that is um, true. <laughs> so, so let's, let's dive on in. Okay, Live and Let Die, it is, um, I suppose to frame the film, blaxploitation cinema was very popular at this juncture, and James Bond has often jumped on the bandwagon for kind of flavors of the the month in cinema. So this was a, an unusual. There's a couple of unusual things about this film, aside from having a brand new James Bond, uh, is blaxploitation elements within it, and also this is the first I think James Bond movie with overtly supernatural elements. Uh, I don't yeah. think we've had anything else like that. Um, so it opens up in, I believe, in the UN, Jake. Am I correct about that? I actually don't remember the end, the pre-credit sequence entirely. So I believe it opens. Doesn't it open with that assassination? Yes. So the opening is the first. There's a trio of assassinations. The first one is at the UN. Um, with the sound the, plunger. Yeah. Uh, which, with this <laughs> ear, ear dynamite, yeah. <laughs> that one's weirdly prescient now because US officials in, like, Cuba and China have been attacked by some sound, a mystery sound. That's... Uh, so, so as much as I make fun of the deadly sound plunger, that's weirdly actually something in James Bond that apparently has turned out semi-true. So, yeah, weird, weird yeah. element. So, yeah, there's the there's the UN meeting. Uh, the British uh, representative is killed, and Yafet Koto is there representing the fictional uh, country of San Monique. He's sitting right. seated alongside Jane Seymour, who will be our Bond girl. And uh, after that man is killed, we cut to a uh, funeral in New Orleans where uh, this is probably has to be one of the most elaborate assassination schemes I've ever seen. Especially because since they do it like multiple times. Yeah, they have <laughs> they have places for this for these murders where they want, if they want to kill some poor bastard who happens to be standing on the street, they uh, arrange an elaborate funeral to march down the street. Stab him surreptitiously, pick him up in a coffin with an open casket on the bottom. I don't know how that works. And then they uh, march away happily. Yes, yes. Well, while there's bystanders on the street that 
clearly would have to see what's happening. Um, yeah. But yes, that's that's so. We we have a trio of assassinations who we find out are all uh, all agents, British Secret Service agents or British representatives, which means that Bond has to get on the case. I do want to talk about the opening credit sequence. It's um, directed well, by we're we're, we're, uh, we're forgetting we're forgetting the uh, the the third assassination. Oh, sorry, sorry, I thought the, yeah, a lot with of the rubber died. snake. Yeah, <laughs> we have we cut to San Monique where there is uh, some sort of a voodoo ceremony going on. And uh, another agent is tied up, and the voodoo master of ceremonies sprays him with weird-looking blood, and then I guess he he pokes a snake at his neck, <laughs> and then the guy just dies. A very realistic, deadly-looking yeah. snake. That's true. Actually, that sets the tone for my next point. I forgot there was the first kind of voodoo ritual, uh, and then we, we segue into the opening credits, which yeah. honestly are made me a little uncomfortable. I don't know about you guys. Uh, it's designed by Morris Binder. He's uh, you know a, a regular designer, and it's, it's obviously it's wonderfully designed for its time in that style. But it has that kind of bare-breasted na- African native women kind of fetish thing going on. It's just it's yeah, a little, with grass it's a little, skirts and yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not like these things are the most progressive. You know, the James Bond title credits. But this one, it kind of sets a tone for the whole movie, I guess. Which is that this is kind of a racist movie. It it hasn't aged brilliantly. Um, it kind of awkwardly piggybacks on black exploitation. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll, we'll get into this. But anyhow, it's it's sort of... Yeah, it's 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 a James Bond opening credit. So, yeah, Adam, what are your thoughts uh, watching this this strange and surreal film? What is What is running through your head? Uh, yeah, it, it gets off to a start, that's for sure. There's a, there's a lot going on. Um, it doesn't need to I think that uh, maybe they'd be better served to focus on, like, one assassination or something. Because uh, the New Orleans one is quite clever. It's it's a fun little scene. Uh, sure, the rest yeah. of it is, is, again, just a bit much. Maybe even the UN one fits because we want to establish... Uh, Yafikado's character there, but um, exactly yeah, the yeah. voodoo thing, all the voodoo thing. There's so much, <laughs> so much voodoo going on in this movie that really does not age well. Again, does doesn't do the film no. any favors at all. But it, it is it is yeah. a little telling that uh, all of it's set in a San Monique, which doesn't exist. They didn't even name a country or want to attach a country to it, uh, which is always very telling. Yeah. So now, while the the images seen in the opening credits themselves might make you feel a little uncomfortable, uh, I don't think anything holds up better than this song. When you were young and your heart yeah. You see, now I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be angry about this because honestly, I don't like this theme tune. What? I don't like. I've never liked this song ever. I'm sorry. Really? Wow. Yeah. No. I'm just gonna have to keep playing it. Yeah. You let let it run. Let it run. No. Um. And I don't know exactly why. It's just there's a tonal incongruity to it for me. It is the first rock song of James Bond's uh, kind of within the, yeah. the genre. But honestly, it just got the orchestration. It's just a bit weedy for me. And Paul McCartney saying "Live and Let Die." Like I just. I was listening to it and I was just thinking it could just well be Paul McCartney going, go to your room and like, like get upstairs and then you're grounded. Like it's just, there's no threat to it at all. And I thought it was actually interesting. I found out that uh, originally they hired Paul McCartney to do the title song, but yeah. um, 
uh, Albert Broccoli and Harry Styles were taught that they didn't know he wanted to sing it as well. Uh, and they got a, another singer to perform it. And then uh, Paul McCartney insisted he sing it or else he wasn't going to sell them it. So they had to let him do it. And the other version appears in the film. A nightclub singer uh, sings it. But yeah, I, it's not like I really hate it. I think it also maybe has something to do with the fact that I was, like, 1991 is about where I started getting concrete recollections of pop culture and Guns N' Roses were, like, top of the charts at that point. <laughs> and Live and Let Die was the song. It was every, it was Live and Let Die and uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit were, like, everywhere you went. And it's one of the earliest kind of, like, rock music I really, you know latched onto and honestly say what you will about Guns N' Roses but their song has at least a kind of an energy to it when the song is about basically saying like just take care of yourself and let everyone else die I just I don't get the Paul McCartney version but obviously Adam what, what do you well, think are you are you siding on the, the, the Jake or the Jack side of this divide uh, I'm somewhere in the middle I think it's a pretty great song and it fits but uh, th- there's points I think they could have utilized it a little better like I think the bridge in this song is particularly wonky and then probably should just not appear that, in the film that like that like rap breakdown it doesn't belong Man. in the movie I mean I could see how it would play uh, on the radio but uh, it, it just Tony McCartney work. knew to drop the bass but alas well, yeah. you know. well I'm glad you mentioned that Adam because I actually this is a new segment I don't have a name for yet where I'm going to uh, chart the Bond themes as we go through them uh, something we have not started yet but uh, this uh, peaked at number nine on the UK uh, charts, and then in the US, it peaked at number two on the US Billboard 100. Uh, not bad. And it also uh, earned the film its solo Oscar nomination for Best Song. Yeah, I, That's right. I honestly thought it would have been higher. I had looked into this myself out of curiosity, because it's really, it's the only Bond song that you'll ever hear, that I could I could turn on the radio tomorrow and hear it play. So I, in my mind, I'm like, well, this has got to be like the highest charting Bond theme, and it it, it turns out it's, it's well, yeah. not as you go forward. But uh, you got to got to remember, Adam, it's a wonderful world by Louis Armstrong. It's a Bond song. <laughs> there's there's a couple of sleepers stuck in there, or we have all the time in the world. Sorry, yeah. yes, uh, yeah. There's there's a few sleeper ones in there that people that honestly, I think like that one's the one that most people forget actually is from a movie. That's been shown up so many more. But certainly this is a classic rock stalwart. Much as I have my own reservations about the song, I'm not going to deny this thing gets radio play to this day. Right. The yep. ultimate side of quality, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Shorter one than more, uh, word. Yeah. So going back to the film, uh, one thing we did not mention, and because uh, he does not appear, uh, Bond is nowhere to be found in the pre-credit sequence, which uh, is a first... Uh, for us, um, well, second if you count the the, the decoy in from Russia with Love, but uh, yeah, Roger Moore does not make his appearance until after the pre-title sequence, where he's found in bed with a, uh, I believe it's a Russian agent, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's Italian, I believe. Italian, that's it. Italian, Miss Caruso, yes. as is her name. Uh, that's right. Yeah, which I had to research to find out because I don't think she's even credited as that. But anyhow. <laughs> Yeah, you will. You will never find a more low-key introduction than Roger Moore, um, because if you recall back to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, they are doing everything they can to sell the pants off of Lazenby as Bond. They're giving him all the the great the introduction angle. He's got the line, 
Uh, there's an action sequence here. Moore is just, uh, he's asleep when he's introduced as Bond. He's can- and he's canoodling with an agent in bed. He gets a, a red digital readout on his watch that uh, M's on his way. Um, and uh, sure enough, M shows up at his apartment, which is also a first for us. Uh, we get to see the inside of James Bond's apartment. That is true. And and, and one of the first gadgets that's introduced, aside from his magnetic watch, is the fact that Bond owns what looks to be maybe an espresso machine, which apparently would blow the minds of audiences in the early 70s that you could have one in your own home. Yeah. Amazing. How times have changed. So, yeah, this is a very, this becomes a very gadget-heavy Bond film, and it's the only Bond film during his tenure where Q does not appear once. For sure. This is a very weird one, because, and I'm reading into this, because I was surprised that Q doesn't appear in this film, and this is the first film, Desmond Llewellyn wasn't in the very first films, but another, the same character was introduced as Major Boothroyd, so, um... Q has been in every Bond film prior to this, so his omission is certainly felt, and apparently it was a, a conscious decision by the producers. They felt it had become too gadget-heavy, so they wanted to take him out and, and move away from that, which is ridiculous, because this is such a gadget-heavy... Like, there's a microphone in every object in this film. Oh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Like, like this, it, there's literally everything is a gadget. There's almost nothing in this that's, like, a, just a normal thing that does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally. Yeah. yeah, they're not all like this, Adam, I swear. But, well, you um, know, well, maybe I, they all are. I kind of, again, as, as more of a novice to the series, I, I almost didn't think it was that gadget heavy uh, as far as bonds implementation uh because uh, again yeah. you, you don't see that cue and you've got i'd say his main prop is just that magnetic watch until the end yeah. which is a gadget that's not really introduced in the film at all but just kind of shows there's a few very surreptitious things that turn out uh. that he's capable of yes um so, okay, so we have Bond introduced. We also have, and I, I did note this, uh, intrepid listeners, if you can if you can correct me on this, I'm not sure, but I feel the magnetic Bond, or uh, magnetic watch that James Bond has, he uses it to undress, uh, to pull down the zipper on Miss Cruz's dress once he's gotten away from M and Moneypenny, and Moneypenny covers for him, of course, because she finds the girl in the closet. Um, yeah. But he uses the magnetic watch to pull down her zipper, and I think this may be the first uh, explicit sexual use of a Q device. Um, I'm not sure. I don't recall any other one, but uh, that's a pretty high tech way of uh, taking off a dress for sure. Yeah, and if you're if you want to know how they did it, they tied a string to the inside of the zipper so it couldn't be seen. And the prop master lied on the ground and pulled the zipper down, and then Bond just mimed lowering the watch as if he was doing it himself. Yes, and apparently, uh, in terms of other gadgetry on the set, uh, Roger Moore's wife was watching that woman like a hawk throughout the, oh, whole, I'll bet. the whole thing. She was supervising her husband on set. Uh, so yeah. that must have been uncomfortable for everyone involved, probably. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so uh, Bond essentially has to go to New York to investigate the death of one of his agents. Uh, his taxi cab is tailing a white pimpmobile. And uh, I love that they use the word pimp mobile. That they literally just look at the car <laughs> yeah. and just go, "That is a pimp mobile." Mobile. <laughs> like yeah. that's a descriptor it's, you can put out over the radio, and people are like, "I know exactly what to look for now." <laughs> I see it. It's got the leather interior upholstery. 
Yeah, it's an it's it's an impressive looking car for sure. Yeah, um, so, so the car it's armed. The side mirror is armed with a dart and a scope, um, which and, kills his driver. That's right, and I believe this is the first kind of official introduction. I do, um because I don't think Baron did Baron Samedi didn't appear in the pre credit sequence, so I believe this is the first introduction of one of the henchmen who is Whisper. Played by Earl Jolly Brown, who is uh, right. he is his superpower is basically he can barely talk. And that's <laughs> yeah. his defining characteristic. It's his name is Whisper, and he talks very quietly. And that's, hey, literally, that's it. Um, and he's the driver of the pimp mobile, uh, and yeah. he he assassinates James Bond's driver, leading mm-hmm. Bond to nearly crash in the New York interstate. Although honestly, that kind of driving for my time in New York looks pretty standard there. I'm not sure anyone else would have noticed. To be honest, but uh, so be it. Bond manages to regain control of the car, and, and immediately his welcome to New York has begun. That's right, yeah. And then we meet our Felix Leiter, uh, who, if I'm not mistaken, this is our fifth iteration of Felix. Sounds uh, right, yes. Yeah, David Hedison, uh, the one of two Felixes to re- play the role twice. He shows up again in uh, License to Kill. Uh, which also shares a lot of similarities with the uh, novel of Live and Let Die, which is probably why they brought him back. But, uh, but yeah, but Bond is basically raising hell in his time in the U.S., and Felix Leiter's one job in this movie is to basically just to get frantic and upset of, at everything Bond does and just put him on the plane so he can go to the next location and ruin whatever is going on there. Um, yeah. Uh, so- where are we? So yeah, certainly uh, Felix Leiter is um, he's got he's a much more active role in this. Uh, Adam, just to clarify, Felix Leiter is he's he's kind of Bond's general American sidekick, a CIA sidekick, operative assistant. But honestly, his roles it's weird. His roles tend to be very depressed in a lot of the films, even when they're in America, where you would imagine Leiter has far greater jurisdiction. But uh, he he's always there to help Bond out, and this one he honestly I think plays more of a role. He doesn't really get his hands dirty, but he's kind of there to to whisk, as you say, J- Jake, whisk Bond away to get on an airplane or get wherever he needs to be. Yeah, he's some sort of a liaison, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he shows up in a lot of the novels as well. Um, so during this time, I believe uh, it's about here we meet. Um, all of our uh, henchmen. Uh, so we've met Whisper. There's also Teehee, a man with a gargantuan claw for a hand, and he wears a he wears sharp, bright red jackets and uh, has a has a hearty laugh about him. Uh, I really like Teehee. I think he's a he's a very memorable villain or henchman rather. Um, I also like when uh, the henchmen aren't exactly uh, silent. Because you can have either you can have it two ways. You can have like your odd jobs or your jaws, who are the mute, silent, indestructible henchmen. But I like when henchmen are very garrulous and have conversations with Bond as they're trying to kill him. It's like they're so, walking the line by having one of them who just whispers. Yeah, whispers. Yeah, he's, <laughs> can we talk about home? this tee hee fellow? Sure. <laughs> what do you? What's on your mind? Presumably an expensive film. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you could I mean, say that. Why is you you know, all... have like uh, one arm that's like seven feet long? <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, among cinema's worst atrocities in the false arm department. I would say. 
<laughs> it's it's, uh, it's something, you know, probably put in a custom request. He wasn't able to reach the remote with the original one, so they, they added a couple of extra feet just for... Just for just to be safe, it's worth mentioning all of these actors uh, from Yefakoto to T. Johnson, played by Julius Harris, and Whisper Earl Charlie Brown. These are all black exploitation regulars. They've all yeah. appeared in numerous of these films. T. Johnson as Julius Harris is interesting too, because apparently he's a dancer by by trade. He was and he worked with like the New York Ballet. Among other things, mm-hmm. and now he's strapped with a, as Adam points out, a ridiculous pincer arm. Um, but he does, he does look like he's having a great time, and I agree, Jake. I think he's he's definitely one of the the high points of the film. I think we, yeah. no, no one's going to forget old Teehee why he's That's called. Right. I I didn't you pick would... up his name was Teehee during the movie. I only found that out later. I don't know if they ever referred him by name. I must have missed it if they did. I think it's, it might be mentioned once, but I'm not 100% positive. Um, anyways, Bond uh, tracks down the pinmobile at a, uh, at a, at a, an occult store called Occult, uh, and then he manages to tail it to a club called Filet of Soul. And on his way there, pretty much everybody on the street has a hidden microphone tucked away into whatever personal belongings they have so that they can contact the owners of the Flea Soul and say, he's turning left down on 5th Street and uh, and basically pinpoint Bond's whereabouts. So Bond is always being watched and commented on his... Uh, his he's always being tracked, rather, throughout the film, which yes. is... I don't know if that's offensive, like the the all-black-people-know-each-other trope, yeah, but... Yeah, it uh, did kind of feel like the whole of Harlem was a criminal enterprise... Uh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, there's definitely that reading there. Um, and apparently, I don't know how the the extent of the production, but like they, they apparently, they did shoot some of it in Harlem, but some exteriors and stuff, they went to like the Upper East Side of New York and just shot buildings there because it was just easier to get access. I don't know if they claim it was like gang activity or if they just didn't want to hang out there. I don't know. Um, I'm sure it's much more exciting to claim, you know, oh, the gangs leaned on us or whatever. And honestly, they might as well have, because honestly, this is not a favorable representation of African-American people. Because, yeah, they all know each other. They're all involved in this massive conspiracy. And weirdly yeah. enough, as will be revealed later on, they're basically out to destroy society uh, by unifying their their black powers i guess it's it's uh like it's weird it's a black exploitation film but with all of the subversiveness removed and replaced with racism um which is a marvelous trick well done uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> so uh so Bond goes into the the club the flay of soul and uh he sits down at a booth and he orders a drink and when the waiter brings the drink up to him uh bond offers him money for information and the man takes the money, the booth wall rotates, and then he drinks Bond's drink and walks away, which I think is a nice little touch. Uh, and then Bond finds that he's in the lair of Mr. Big, who is uh, uh, maybe one of our two main heavies, hint, hint, of the movie. That's right. Uh, Adam, yeah, Adam, what do you think of Mr. Big? Uh, some more stellar costuming in this. <laughs> <laughs> and, and makeup, too, right? Does he yeah, have a yeah, great-looking face? It's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can see why they weren't nominated for certain Oscars. <laughs> it is true. That's, yeah. that's not much of a reveal. Uh, spoiler alert. Mr. Big might be uh, someone else in disguise in rubber face. Yeah. Um, but we were also introduced here 
more properly to Solitaire, the the main yes. Bond girl of the film, who is played, of course, by Jane Seymour, um, who mm-hmm. is in a very early role for her. She really she done a few small roles in film and television. This is probably this is the role that really cemented her status and kind of turned her into, I guess, a kind of a worldwide sex symbol to some degree. She didn't, she never really had like an absolutely stellar film career, but she, she worked steadily after this for sure. Um, but she's also our first overtly supernatural element within a James Bond movie in that she uses yeah. tarot cards and can genuinely predict the future, it would appear. So, um, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's the reason why everybody is on immediately on to Bond is because she saw his arrival. It she foretold it with her tarot cards in New York. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, Bond meets her, and uh, I, I love Roger Moore gets to deliver Bond James Bond, which uh, I think he appropriately underplays with a bit of a smile, which is very nice. And before he leaves, he, he, I, I love this is just pure Roger Moore. He draws a card from. Uh, Solitaire's deck and hands it to her and he says, us, perhaps? And it's the lover's card. Uh, and she she's taken aback, but maybe she kind of sees something in this, this secret agent. There, there's we'll a bit of ambiguity out. there, for sure. Yeah. Um, because, yes, later on, Bond pulls a trick on her on the, the seer of the future, which is a little bit unusual. Yeah. So uh, Bond is obviously... Um, uh, assigned his henchmen are assigned to kill Bond to get rid of him so obviously they successfully kill him and the film is over because why wouldn't they um, no Bond uses uh, some some overhead stairs and it honestly doesn't look like that at work they had pretty bad reactions uh, but he, he manages to evade them and gets picked back up again I believe by the CIA so he can move mm-hmm. on to his next location yeah Strutter that's the CIA agent Strutter oh, he's pretty cool <laughs> yeah, so, uh, meanwhile, Bond is then paired up with an agent, um, giving the best performance, uh, in the film, Rosie Carver. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> another, another exploitation uh, veteran. Ah, oh, this is terrible. An interesting fact about this film, actually, looking at it, is the original script by Tom Mankiewicz had, um, Solitaire was actually going to be a black woman, um, mm. and Rosie Carver was going to be white, and that was nixed or was swapped because it was felt that for distribution internationally and honestly probably in the UK and America as well, it was just kind of deemed a little bit too out there for Bond's main squeeze in the film to be African-American. Uh, so they swapped that around and Solitaire is played by Jane Seymour and Rosie Carver becomes an African-American character and she's a CIA agent. She's apparently a brilliant CIA agent who graduated top for a class etc except that yeah, she apparently. is terrible at everything she's scared of everything she does carry an enormous gun I will give her that that's a very impressive gun that she has it looks like she's never held one before um, yeah she she is an unfortunate prop in this film she really gets very little to do yeah mostly she's just there to react to the uh, the occult items that they find like uh like for instance they find in bond's hotel room there's a hat with bloody feathers on it and she starts freaking out at it and then bond picks it up and says i wrote it down don't worry darling it's just a small hat belonging to a man of limited means who lost a fight with a chicken oh elementary my dear watson yes yes uh, so yeah, yeah. So so we have 
<laughs> we have Rosie Carver. Uh, she turns out to be a double agent. Spoiler alert yeah. there. Yeah, let's just say she just gets she gets killed off later by one of the voodoo scarecrows in the movie. Pretty, they, pretty much. Like one that shoots darts. Bond inexplicably still manages to sleep with her because apparently even though she's a double agent, she's so terrified of everything or wants to lull him, him into a false sense of security. But honestly, it never looks like she knows what she's doing. It's very awkward, but but they, they sleep together and then he she dies and then that's it. Never, never mentioned, like, there's no... So, like, basically just dumped out of the film instantaneously. Uh, really, really unfortunate, honestly, um, in that, honestly, Gloria Hendry, who... Uh, Rosie Carver is really the first Bond... The first black Bond girl that really interacts with Bond as, like, a, an acquaintance. Uh, we have Thumper, I believe. Was it Thumper or Bambi? I hate that's oh, the stupidest yeah. question that anyone would ever have to ask. <laughs> Which of the stupid names did the... Okay, Adam, just to let you know, in the prior... In Diamonds Are Forever, uh, Bond was beset by two female assassins, two deadly women, steeped in martial arts, capable of killing anyone with their, with their bare hands, who chose to name themselves Bambi and Thumper. I believe Thumper was the African-American woman. I believe it was film. Thumper. She is officially the first uh, black Bond girl. Uh, Gloria Henry comes in second, but she gets to sleep with Bond, which gives her a special place in the Bond girl uh, pantheon, I guess. And then she is quickly killed and spoken of no more. She mostly spends the entire film screaming and looking scared for her, like, ten minutes maybe of screen time, probably even less than that. Well, you know, there was... There was oh, a yeah. snake. Um, That's right. Yeah, Which and Bond kills with a flammable uh, aftershave and a cigar. <laughs> I will. Yes, Th- that's something to note. Uh, Roger Moore's James Bond just smokes big ass cigars. Uh, a little bit of a change up there. He doesn't wear a hat. He smokes cigars. He drinks whiskey. Yeah. Uh, they're trying to they're trying to distance him from from the Sean Connery model. Um, uh, the cigars are kind of an odd touch, though. That feels unBond-like to me, but uh, Moore sells it pretty well. I do like the snake assassination, I have to say, because um, it honestly is one of my favorite shots in the film, which is that snake. They, they have a shot of a real snake uh, at mm. one point before they substitute it for a very definitely not real snake. But there's a great shot of the snake coming out under the shower curtain, and the snake just raises its head just enough to brush the shower curtain as it's moving forward. It's this really intriguing hunting shot. It's I actually quite like that. Um, and then Bond turns around and tortures the poor bastard. So, but what's impressive is they send they send a snake to kill Bond, and then they also send Rosie Carver to kill Bond, and they also send a henchman delivering other things to him. I, I don't, they're they're doing a lot of work here. When they have someone who can see the future, <laughs> uh, yeah, and guns and guns, yeah, the, the, really, there's no reason why a man could. They own the island. The whole of the island is pretty much just Mr. Big, Doctor Kananga's playground. Um, they could have just walked in and shot him, and then gotten rid of him. But apparently, that would be rude. I guess they might get a bad yeah. review on TripAdvisor for their hotel or something. Yeah, so uh, jumping forward a bit, Bond is captured and brought to an airport where he's to be taken by Mr. Big. But uh, with the help of Solitaire, he escapes and hijacks a flight school plane (laughs) where he proceeds to tear the wings off of it and chase off uh, Kananga's men at the airport. Uh, We get our... Mm-hmm. First, uh, first, real quick, first uh, expletive in a, blonde, a Bond movie. The woman says, holy shit, 
as he's driving towards the hangar door. No, so you're pointing out exactly what I was going to point out. That's a truly momentous yeah. occasion in the in the PG thirteenification of the James Bond franchise. This has become a this has become something more notable later on. What did you think of this uh, this poor old woman, Adam? Ah, uh, this is this is when the movie really starts to amp it up with the zaniness. I think uh, <laughs> this you're, you're not uh, wrong. Yeah, it, it starts. It, it, it's entertaining. I'll grant it that. It's not necessarily what I expected going in. Felt like something more like in like Flint or something. But yeah, it's we true. did. Yeah, should say we did skip the part where Bond uh, sleeps with Solitaire by basically stacking a tarot card full of lover cards, which presumably means that he bought fifty packs of tarot cards, picked out the lovers card. And put them all in his deck. The British taxpayer will foot the bill. Um, yeah. yeah, this is this is a deeply shitty thing that James Bond did. Um, he tricks now. Okay, she can see the future, so I'm, tricking her seems an interesting thing to begin with. But literally, he sleeps with her, and as part of that, she loses her ability to foretell the future. She he takes her virginity. Um, yeah. And she loses the ability to foresee the future. It's a very awkward sequence. Um, I mean, she's game, basically, because he lies to her, so she thinks the tarot is telling her to do it. Which, yeah. Okay, it's not okay at all. It's a very shitty thing. Um, right, no. But there we go. It's James Bond. Uh, I'm, I'm like, I'd be lying if I said this was the shittiest thing James Bond has ever done to a woman. Um, I'm not sure we should. We should maybe try to run down a top ten of that at some point. It'll be. I think we should not. <laughs> well, it's, it's not exactly the most progressive piece of writing either to, to make the character uh, lose her powers upon uh, losing her virginity. It's a, an odd trope. No, uh, to indulge in. It's it's. To be fair, I suppose in a film that uh, that concerns itself with a very broad sketching of voodoo and uh, various other, so, <laughs> you know, whatever. As well sure, all the it, it all makes sense. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, and her mother lost her sight, presumably getting pregnant with her. So, and and that's actually kind of a weird one, actually. Yeah, which must mean that yeah, Mister Big has probably had her since she was a small child. Yeah, using her for for clairvoyance. He's like, yeah, we just got the extra mile and had her like outfitted with a chastity belt or something. <laughs> yeah, it's kind yeah. of weird anyway, because uh, Fokato is like 33 in this movie. He's pretty young um, as an actor. He's actually notably one of the youngest actors to ever play a Bond villain, maybe the youngest. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of weird that he has he, he knew this girl's mo- mother. Um, that's strange, but I guess his age is he's, who knows, with voodoo and everything, perhaps he's just got a wonderfully youthful visage. Um, so, anyway. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's get to Mr. Okato. So... Bond goes back to the Filet of Soul. Uh, he sits at a chair adjacent to the stage where I forgot, I did not write the, down the name of the performer, but there's the other version of Live and Let Die. It's being sung by the woman on the stage. And uh, much like the booth that Bond sat in earlier, he happens to sit at the one table that is equipped with a trap door to go to Mr. Big's lair underground. Um <laughs> And he just disappears, in the, and the wait staff just put an empty table in his place. 
Which again um, suggests that every customer and patron of the of the Filio Soul franchise, there's at least yeah. two of them, one in New York, one in New Orleans, every single person in that club is apparently cool with kidnapping and understands that this is just something that happens. Yeah, so uh, Bond is taken face-to-face to Mr. Big. He, Mr. Big is asking him if he had sex with uh, Solitaire. Although he doesn't put it that mildly, he says, did you touch that? Uh, That's and then Bond won't reveal himself until unless he can speak with uh, Mr. Or, uh, Mr. Kananga. Um, so Mr. Big takes off his uh, rubbery mask and reveals, oh, it was Yafik Koto all along. Yes, to the surprise of, I would say, nobody. Uh, the the, the yeah. makeup is phenomenally bad. When he pulls off his makeup, he's like, you feel relief because what, what's on his face prior to that just looks really uncomfortable <laughs> and awful. <laughs> so he pulls it off like, aha, it was a mask all along. It's like, you're really, yeah, you're, you're correct. It was. Um, but yes, we finally clarify that Mr. Big and Dr. Kananga, the uh, Prime Minister of Samonique, are one and the same, which is a deeply troubling. It suggests that this man has, has political power, but also is cementing uh, a drug trade in the United States, which again is really just... I was reading about this, and Tom Mankiewicz, who wrote it, uh, got the idea to kind of uh, steep the film in a, in kind of the African-American elements, because black exploitation cinema was popular, but also, you know, late 60s, early 70s, you had the rise of the black nationalist movement, Black Panthers, and so on, radical leftist movements and civil rights, on the tail end of the civil rights acts in, in the United States. Um and honestly, he just uses all of that as an excuse to build a story that basically involves African-Americans smuggling a bunch of drugs into African-American communities to poison African-American communities, which is, uh, for anyone familiar with, say, the uh, legacy of, you know, Nixon and Reagan, etc., is just terrible, honestly. Uh, not surprising, but terrible nonetheless. Maybe they secretly yeah. uh, ran the CIA. Who knows? That's, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe. A, yeah, huh. maybe there's a bigger conspiracy going on for sure. How deep does it go? Yeah, so uh, anyways, for Bond's punishment, uh, again, instead of just shooting him in the back of the head, they take him to a gator farm uh, where they plan on stranding him at an island in a... I love I love that they have a gator farm. They just have, <laughs> they have one a, available. They have a gator farm. They have a drum filled with raw chicken to feed the gators. Uh, yeah, it's uh, that it's, scene. That scene. This scene honestly gives me. I just because because T he comes out with his pincer thing and he's picking up all this raw chicken and chucking it to the gators. And honestly, I'm just looking at that going like, just, I really hope he washes that pincer afterwards because that's just, that's a food safety violation waiting to happen. That's oh. gross. You're like, don't, get a fork. Pick up a fork in your pincer and use that to chuck raw meat at a bunch of gators. I do appreciate that. They, they found this gator farm uh, early on in production and incorporated it in and actually uh, Dr. Kananga the bad guy is named after Ross Kananga who's yeah. the man who runs the gator farm in real life um, they just they were that taken with him as as a character yeah. um, so that's kind of a strange a strange thing but yes they, they, they trap Bond out in an island surrounded by alligators and they then leave him to be eaten by the alligators but 
otherwise to his own devices. They don't supervise or watch or anything. Uh, yeah. Who would you? They, was time. <laughs> who would not want to see a man get torn to pieces by an alligator? I, presumably they've done it so much, it's just standard for them. But uh, anyways, Bond escapes, first attempting to uh, bring in a boat using his magnetic watch at the, uh, I don't know what those are called, can, the can ore holders. Can we talk for a second, okay, about the physics of the magnetic watch? Because he just stands it's, there and holds up his thing, and he turns on and on. He did it gladly. in his apartment first, okay? There's a lot of metal stuff in, in any given. There's pipes in the wall. There's everything. He's not pulled towards anything. Just small objects come to him. And yeah. he's standing in the middle of the thing, and he, a whole boat starts coming towards him. His arm doesn't even shift. This yeah, is, this Bond, he works out for sure. Maybe maybe he can control the power on it, but you're right. If he can get that boat, then I think all of the knives and silverware should have flung <laughs> from his kitchen into the, the Italian agent's back. I feel like the fillings in his teeth would be sucked into the into it first. I don't know. It's it's yeah. a bit bit of a bit far fetched in a film that I think we can all agree otherwise. Very straight laced. Oh yeah, guys. Yeah. I think I have heard you talk. Uh, glowingly about some of the action sequences in these films uh now this one i just wanted to, to point out how how seamlessly the stunt doubles are uh added into this thing i, I get the sense that roger Moore did not come within five miles of an alligator <laughs> during filming no I, I believe it's uh ross kananga the gator farm owner i believe he, he put on a pair of uh he's was basically roger moore's leg double and he ran across the backs of gators so for all intents and purposes, it is a real stunt that they're doing. But you're right. Roger Moore is nowhere near that island. Oh, no. no. Doing it. No. And just as well, apparently they did about five takes. Apparently it was Roger Moore's idea that he put on crocodile skin shoes while doing it. Which is, you know, Roger Moore, he, he's an interesting James Bond. But he had some weird little quirky ideas that he managed to suggest into these films as well. And uh, Ross Kananga, the owner of the Gator Farm, did the stunt. And he did it apparently five times. Which is a, an interesting way to spend your afternoon. And on the fifth attempt, yeah. one of the alligators tried to take him and just tore yeah. his pants. But he got away. Everything was fine. There were no lawsuits. So, yeah. um, and it's pretty. It's a pretty good stunt, honestly. It's it's a really. It's not something you see every day. I'll give yeah. him that for sure. As far as a, yeah, as far as something doing something practical back then, they were which they were mostly all about. I I think I think it's a neat little little trick for um, sure. I, yeah. And this leads us into probably the the largest action sequence of the, the whole film. Oh, boy. Uh, I forget how long it is every time I watch this long. movie. It's, it is at least 12 minutes long. It is very long. And it also introduces some other weird elements. So, it's so James Bond... Uh, oh, that, okay, Bond. weird is putting it mildly. <laughs> okay, yeah. There you go. So, we are introduced to the nadir of James Bond, <laughs> Sheriff J.W. Pepper. Who is a, who is a kind recurring of, uh, character? <laughs> He, is, he appears he, once more, but uh, be, as it, he's he's in the next film, as I, if the producers thought, oh, audiences couldn't get enough of this guy. <laughs> like, what feedback came back? So I more of that pepper fella. <laughs> um, but I, in my way, I kind of want to defend him because um, this is a movie I've discussed that has a lot of ugly racial overtones. But Jesus, Sheriff J. W. Pepper as a depiction of uh, white. Southern masculinity is the most grotesque monster <laughs> in the whole film. So it's always it always feels like a redressing of it. He's just this disgusting tobacco chewing moron uh, who just basically just 
I mean, literally, he starts the whole thing because uh, uh, one of the one of Kananga's henchmen is chasing Bond. He's driving to intercept Bond. Bond steals a, a speedboat and is speeding away. And one one of the henchmen gets a car and he's driving and he's speeding. And so it's a, it's a it's it's a pullover for speeding. But you could tell that this this racist sheriff is like all out to get this African American for whatever he can. And it turns out he actually is a hardened criminal, so I guess there's some reinforcing there. But anyway, this this boat chase goes on forever. It's and there's so many boats and so much chasing. It's kind of ridiculous. And they're going through the bayou, and they're I don't I lost count of how many times they like jumped boats over strips of land. They ruin a wedding because that's they, what happened. They ruin a wedding. They go over, I want to say, at least two bridges, if not underneath one of them, which has a police barricade. Um, Bond switches boats at least twice. <laughs> at least twice, yeah, because yeah. why not? Uh, they inadvertently, yeah. um, it's worth noting in this whole sequence, they inadvertently set a Guinness World Record for the longest boat jump. They weren't even setting out to do that, but they ended up jumping one of the boats 110 feet. Those uh, are the best kinds of records. Which, which stood for about three years, apparently, until someone else with a speedboat had enough time and whatever, inclination to best that. Uh, the car, the boat that crashed on top of the sheriff's car, in which is one, honestly one of the best stunts, apparently that, that wasn't apparently meant to happen. Um, it just fell short, and they just left it in there, which is... In- extremely encouraging they may have shot some more inserts for it but at some point a boat crashed into a car and it wasn't meant to and they were like well that's kind of cool i guess <laughs> we should do something with that um, yeah anyways sheriff pepper is in this way too much um <laughs> he, he, literally anytime he's on screen he grinds the film to his uh, the halt with his racist nonsense it is literally like dukes of hazard just stumbled yeah, yeah, for no say, reason yeah, like uh, Smokey and the Bandit or something. All of a sudden, the movie just morphs yeah. into that. Yeah. Which which this movie predates by four years, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe they yeah. were the people asking for more J.W. Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> good, good, good God, y'all. Uh, anyways, Bond manages to uh, evade capture from the police and uh, the henchman. He kills the final guy by throwing gasoline into his face, which causes him to steer into a freighter ship and explode, as you do. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so my notes kind of trail off to, to some key points here. Um, but basically, Bond knows what Big is up to. He's destroyed one of his heroin farms. So he goes to uh, the island of San Monique where he blows up his fields of heroin. Uh, then he crashes the uh, voodoo ceremony that is going on. And uh, we haven't even really discussed him, but here he faces off against Baron Samedi. Um, who, if you're familiar with the GoldenEye N64 007 game, he was, I think, one of the creepiest skins that you could play because he looked uh, less like a black man and more like a burn victim. Uh, I don't think they could render skin tones properly back then. Um, but uh, but I think, uh, as just adding to the supernatural element of the movie, I really like uh, Baron Samidi. He's a yeah. guy who's mostly just a big, hearty laugh. That's that's true. Yeah, he's um, and this kind of brings in um, some of Kananga. The character was based around uh, the Haitian dictator Papa Doc Duvalier, and apparently, I think Baron Samidi is is a kind of a, a spirit character that's recognized through voodoo lore. So apparently, uh, I think I think invoking him by name maybe brought in a certain element of, of references because Papa Doc, I believe, actually claimed to be Baron Samidi or or his whatever equivalent. 
um, at some point in his his weird personality cult he, he rendered in Haiti uh, in fact actually Duvalier's power probably is one of the main reasons they didn't shoot in Haiti because it was just not not a safe stable country to be in at that juncture but yeah Samidi is, is an interesting character and he is he is and he isn't supernatural because there's the porcelain one that shows up and they they shoot him and it's a doll um, yeah. uh, Bond still shoots him like four times to ensure he's definitely a dog. He shoots him in the head and his head shatters and Bond is like, mm, that's weird. And then wastes several more bullets <laughs> to make the whole it thing is. shatter. But it's a, I remember being young and that effect creeping me out as a kid is the when he gets shot in the head and the eyes still look really lifelike as they roll to the back of the dummy's skull. I, hmm. If I'm not mistaken, I think Rick Baker helped make this effect happen. Oh really? Yeah, which oh. is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's definitely in terms of visual elements within this film, it's definitely this is a big one. And it's worth knowing Solitaire has been tied up. She's going to be as you mentioned the pre credit sequence, we have the voodoo priest with his snake, his wonderful mm-hmm. rubber snake that he makes bite bite the victims to die. It's Solitaire's turn tied to a pole to uh tied to a pole in a pair of gold heels. Uh, which mm. is an interesting, uh, interesting part of the whole thing, but um, he, the voodoo priest comes comes up and they, they they're going to summon Baron Samidi and Bond intervenes and cruelly shoots. You don't bring a snake to a gunfight, I guess is the uh, the lesson we're going to learn here. Uh, Bond takes care of him and another guy with a machete very quickly before facing off against Baron Samidi, who um, for all of his supernatural lore, once once porcelain guy has been off the real Baron Smitty shows up and Bond unceremoniously chucks him into a coffin full of snakes and shuts the lid on him yeah they uh yeah they're set up to have like this big fight and Bond just basically sidesteps him into his death yeah and apparently uh, Jeffrey Holder who plays Baron Smitty was deathly afraid of snakes which I wouldn't hold against anyone and only agreed to do that because there were real snakes in the casket at least a few of them he he literally only did that stunt because apparently uh, Princess Alexandra was visiting the set that day and he didn't want to like he wanted to save face when a royal visit was occurring so he was willing to be dunked into a friggin box full of snakes um, yeah. But I suppose it plays on camera. It works pretty well. Um, yeah. But so, uh, after that, yeah, Bond uh, makes his way down into Mr. Big's lair, or Dr. Kananga's lair, where he's captured yet again and he held really, at his mercy. Yeah, he's he's really bad about that here. Honestly, I feel like there's a, there's a story <laughs> through the whole Bond franchise of James Bond getting clocked violently in the back of the head because he doesn't look behind him ever. Yeah. And uh, Miss Dr. Kananga is uh, examining some of the gadgets that Bond has brought with him. One of them being the shark bullet. Adam, t- tell us about the shark bullet. I, I don't know what the hell this thing is or, or how it comes into the <laughs> plot. It's, it's just there. Like, it's a, a capsule, some sort of compressed air capsule that factors mm-hmm. into his yes, escape for- somehow... I feel I feel yeah. bad at this point because because I think it's roughly introduced when Bond has another sidekick. Quarrel Junior shows up earlier in the film. We glossed over that a little bit when Bond yeah. went, Bond gets to the island by hang gliding in and he's brought out on a boat by Quarrel Junior, which is of course a clear reference to Quarrel. The man is his sidekick in Doctor No, the very first film. 
um, yeah. who was honestly pretty cool up until the point where he got killed by the dragon, um, yeah. which is basically just a car with a dragon painted on a friggin' flamethrower at the front, and he stands in front of it, <laughs> and that doesn't end well for old Quarrel Sr. Quarrel Jr. Uh, does much better in this film. There are no dragons to take him out. But it's just kind of a, an interesting uh, continuity uh, between films here. But yes, uh, the shark gun is introduced as a gun that kills sharks in the most obvious way uh, you would imagine for offing a large fish, which is making it explode by using compressed air. Yeah, he tests it out by, uh, he's one of my favorite moments in the entire franchise. He fires it at the couch (laughs) that Whisper is sitting on. (laughs) Poor Whisper is catapulted into the air as the couch below him inflates and pops. (laughs) And Yafikoto goes, ingenious! That couch has some really good seals. Um, It's a lot of air they got into that couch before it popped. Um, So, yeah, so so that brings us to the the finale with James Bond um, with Solitaire still in her gold heels, uh, you know, as is appropriate dress for the occasion. And Bond kills Whisper almost... I feel bad for poor Whisper because, honestly, he's not the greatest character. But uh, he pretty much just gets dumped into... Uh, Dr. Kananga reveals he's smuggling the heroin in these airtight submarine missile things. He's just shooting under the water that will yeah. go wherever he needs to. And he just dunks... And so James Bond dunks uh, Whisper into it and it closes. Um, there's no real mention of anything after that, but since Dr. Kananga kindly mentioned that they're airtight, we can assume that... Uh, Whisper probably suffocates, yeah. Yes, see, he shall speak no more. Um, And then we get to the finale, which, um, uh, Adam, weigh in here. What what happens to Dr. Kananga? (laughs) Yes, Adam, tell us. Dr. Kananga, he goes the way of the couch. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I guess you don't introduce a shark gun unless you plan to use it, but... Man. Yes, Chekhov's shark gun, as it's uh, yeah. referenced. Yes, indeed. Uh, this is this is a bad. Like this is simultaneously uh, one of the best Bond deaths <laughs> and the worst. Oh, I will uh, agree, but just say it's one of the worst. It's it's it's, it's so terrible. outlandish. It's ridiculous. The special effects for an inflated man, and they like fast motion it just to like. Because he flies up in the ceiling, because apparently compressed air is also lighter than air, yeah. which is an interesting scientific <laughs> touch. Um, but he, he inflates, he's like, he zooms up, like, literally, like, um, I'm thinking, God, I'm like, like riding in Mortal Kombat or something, like some weird scene. Or like, it's, it's just some scene I'm thinking of with a dude similarly inflated, and it looks just as stupid. Uh, this yeah. is probably cheaper, though. And he zooms up into the air and then explodes. So, refresh my memory. Just... How how exactly does the compressed air pellet come to uh, Kananga's insides? So, uh, he is not actually shot with a shark gun. It's some sort of other... Mechanism. Bond gets it with his... When Bond's tied up on the, the device over the sharks, Bond is able to get one of the bullets using his magnet watch... Uh, and then this is kind of bullshit because Bond uses a saw blade on yes. his watch, which has never been established in any film, including this one, to yep. cut free of his bindings. Uh, he knocks Whisper into the airtight missile. Bond and Kanega then start fighting and they get thrown into the water. Uh, and then Bond puts the capsule into his mouth and then pushes his head underwater as if to activate it. Yeah. And then, 
instead of spitting it out like you think <laughs> a, a rational person would do, Kananga just struggles under the water before he gives a wide-eyed look to the camera, and then he expands like, and explodes. Who thought this was a yes. good idea? Why didn't he just get shot with the shark gun? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, I've got to admit, it's a little bit risky, I would imagine. I, I Like, I don't... Does water activate it? Does impact activate it? Because it, like, clatters up against his watch. I feel that's a risky move. If it came, uh, you know, front first into his watch, he could have just ended up blowing himself into the tank of sharks himself. Um, but I, I will point out at this point, I found a quote from Yafakoto talking about the film um, afterwards in 2012, so many years had passed. And he was he said about the film, there were so many problems with that script. I was too afraid of coming off like Manton Moreland, so basically he didn't want to complain. I had to dig deep in my soul and brain and come up with a level of reality that would offset the sea of stereotype crap that Tom Mankiewicz wrote that had nothing to do with the black experience or culture. Cotto said that he did this by drawing... Uh, so, yeah, okay, so he said he did this by drawing on a real-life situation he was going through that saved me. I don't know what that real-life situation was. And then he did point out that the way that Kananga dies was a joke. The entire experience was not as rewarding as I wanted it to be. And I can only imagine that for, um... For Cotto, he's, he's a very fine actor. And just prior to this, a film we've discussed uh, on another podcast, uh, Bone, Larry Cohen's film, which, um, Adam, I know you're a big champion of. Cotto, uh, he's, he's a great actor, really interesting character actor. Yeah. And yeah, to, to show up in this movie as the main villain and basically to be blown up in a comically ridiculous fashion it's kind of an uh, a kick in the teeth it, to be honest yeah and he he doesn't as someone who came to this for yafikoto uh he doesn't get a ton to do in this movie i guess no this is his his monologue scene but it's really the only scene where he even gets to do any scenery chewing it's uh not a real showcase for him unfortunately no he he doesn't get a lot and i've seen some people nominate uh Kananga is one of the worst Bond films. Uh, I, I don't know if, if if that's fully true. I guess we can have that discussion later on. But he's definitely, like you say, he, do, he doesn't even really get to chew the scenery. He doesn't really get to do much of anything. Yeah, uh, I would not say he's one of the worst, though. I think, uh, though he does not have much time, I, I do think he is he's very charismatic uh, and, and like a good equal to Bond. At least he never is is it never really devolves into a sort of uh i don't know a monster like he still manages to keep his cool that's true um, it is it's worth it's worth noting also at this juncture that i believe since kananga is the prime minister of a un member nation that i think this is the first time that james bond has committed a political assassination um so there could be some interesting fallout after that but whatever long live written it'll be fine uh, yeah, I'm sure he's, he's he has to have done dozens of those at this point. Probably. So. Um, yeah, that's it. Becomes a recurring theme uh, where Bond essentially in upcoming films, where Bond essentially meets the Elon Musk of the world, <laughs> finds his scheme, and then kills him. That's oh, there's the <laughs> that's real the, James Bond when we yeah. need him. But uh, but the film does not end there. No, sir. No. We have we have one more scene, and it is of course a Bond. A stalwart Bond scene, a train scene. Where will we be? We yeah. have boat, a boat and a train. These are how Bond gets around. So we had our boat scene, and then we had more boat scene, and several other boat scenes, and then a continued boat scene. And now we have a train scene, and it's Bond and Solitaire, uh, and they're they're settling down for the night. 
Um, and who should show up? But of course, Teehee, who has not mm-hmm. been dispatched yet, although he obviously no. didn't, didn't succumb to food poisoning from the raw chicken he was handling previously. So no, he's, he he's ready smuggles to Smuggles himself on a, on a, looks like a, you, an air mail bag. <laughs> yeah, how, that's how he got on the train. How does that even happen? He could have just bought a ticket. No one was looking yeah. for him. But no, he smuggled himself in a bag and then cuts his way out of the bag using his apparently razor-sharp pincer, which must make it really dangerous to pick up stuff, um, and then oh, goes after Bond. So um, so we, we have a weird, gag, uh, a, a weird gag inserted here where Solitaire is getting ready in her bunk bed, kind of in the, the fold-down bed, and she's waiting for, for James to hop on in with her to get down to some business. She She's just lost her virginity, so obviously she's she's keen to to follow up on that with much more action before she disappears and never is mentioned again, as happens to all of Bond's girlfriends. But in comes Teehee, and in the, in the ensuing scuffle, before she even realizes anything's happened, Bond basically shuts her into the... or Teehee shuts her into the, the wall, just folds the bed up. Um, and she actually never realizes that there was a bad guy there at all. Bond and Teeve battle loudly and ferociously for several minutes um, before eventually uh, we're in a death grip and the pincer, his artificial arm, comes in. And Bond, how does Bond cut the, the thing again? I don't remember. Well, Teehee's suit jacket is torn at the shoulder and Bond grabs a pair of... Uh, Look like little cutters from uh, the Solitaire's makeup bag. And he what? cuts the... I don't know why she had those. Man, her eyelashes <laughs> or something must be crazy. Her toenails must be... Like, that she's got basically a pair of, like, yeah. reinforced wire cutters that she, she keeps around, you know? You never know what yeah. a girl might need, I guess. Yeah, so that uh, so he uses that to cut the, uh, the wires on Teehee's shoulder, which uh, control the... Uh, the claw, the pincer. Uh, again, this is some like this is some real ash from the Evil Dead shit. I, I don't know how he revs his chainsaw; he just does. Um, but this causes his pincer to lock up, and Bond is able to to have him lock onto the frame of the window, and Bond just unceremoniously chucks him out the window. That's the end of Teehee. Chucks him out the windows, and then he, he pulls down the bed, and throughout all of this, um, Solitaire just thought he was joking, just playing a funny joke of smashing her yeah. up against a wall for a while. Just just being disarming, darling. And he said he cracks wise, and, and oh, all is right with the world. So yeah, so uh, that wraps up uh, Live and Let Die. So Adam, well, what one, one more oh. one more thing at the at the front of the train. Don't forget, Baron oh, Samedes. That's Still right. alive, laughing to himself. That's true. We do have our final supernatural touch uh, with Baron Samedi up front laughing as he zooms into the camera and we're re- we're informed that James Bond will return in The Man with the Golden Gun. But Adam, yeah. so so, what is, what's your overall takeaway from this film? Is this, would this encourage you to watch more James Bond movies? Roger Moore, would you stay away from Roger Moore era? Uh, that's hard to say. I, I mean, I had fun with the movie. But it's not what I would call a good movie by any any stretch. <laughs> it's it's problematic. It's awfully shaggy. That's for sure. Like uh, the boat scene. It is two hours uh, long. The boat it scene is, is is interminable at times, and this train sequence should not be in the film. Probably, <laughs> I think we had a satisfying <laughs> conclusion. That, I mean, as satisfying as Yafakoto being turned into a parade float can be. Uh, but that that was the natural end point for the film, I would think. And there, this train sequence is like, 
it's just like more, more, more in this film, which. It is. It is something of a Bond trope that there's always that. It's something that develops that that one henchman seems to outlive their their employer, the main villain, to come after Bond, which is kind of an interesting touch. But it, I don't. I don't know. It's. It's. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel this film is overlong. Definitely. It's. It's. Yeah. It meanders at several points. Yeah, but I, I mean, yeah, my, a lot of sorry, uh, my. I was gonna say, my, no, no, go ahead. Uh, to answer the question more fully, it, it would not discourage me from exploring this further. I, I again don't think more would be the natural jumping off point for me, but uh, I, uh, this movie did not discourage me. Yeah, it was fun. If this is, I would assume this is probably toward a lower tier for such things, and it's. Uh, uh, again, it's it's a fine film. It's a movie I would I would enjoy revisiting on occasion, maybe with a, a couple beers or something. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I get it. I think I think at times it would be a real strain to watch with uh, with a group of inebriated friends. For sure. Very, Roger Moore makes a really good hangout Bond. Yeah, I do. I do think of Roger Moore as Bond. That I I do appreciate his his persona here. I think yeah. he's. For a film that really goes pr- is pretty over the top throughout, I think he does successfully underplay a lot of details. Like he really could have gone crazy with it, and he kind of limits himself to his one peaked eyebrow and like a little bit of a like, "Oh, did that just happen?" sort of a look. Um, well, I don't know if you've uh, if you've ever read Roger Moore describe his uh, acting style, but he has two. <laughs> it's left eyebrow raised, right eyebrow raised. The man did well, so I mean, we can all learn from that. To be honest, uh, he gets a lot of mileage out of it, and it, it is. I feel he just he doesn't have. I, I feel compared to to Connery and Lazenby, he doesn't have the physical. Um, like he, there's, he doesn't feel dangerous as James Bond. Uh, there's no. no kind of like like Connery certainly had like a wisecracking, but like he's kind of a psycho underneath it all, and um, that's kind of established. And Lazenby is a bit of a He's young and he's trim and he's sort of like a more of a romantic James Bond, but he still swings some big hits in that film in Honor, Majesty's Secret Service. Connery really does just look like just a dude who's just like just traveling through and kind of you mean more? yeah or more. Sorry, he, yeah, he, he's just kind of going through, looking a little bit surprised that everything's happening here. But he seems to rein himself in well enough that it works pretty well like the he he doesn't need to overplay it because the film really amps up so much so much of what we got here um definitely this is a pushing towards a a much more uh what we say stylized kind of outlandish james bond aesthetic which i think roger moore's era came to be very much defined by sure i would i would also add and again i'm I'm sure more is uh, a favorite among some probably because of this this goofier tone that probably pleases some people, uh, but he, to me, he just doesn't read as like sexy enough, if, if you will. Like Bond is, is supposed to be this sort of debonair, irresistible force, and, and Roger Moore just doesn't just doesn't come across that way. <laughs> he just looks like a fucking yeah, guy. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if any of the Bonds read sexy enough to get away with some of the scripting in the Bond movies, but yeah, fair point. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
Shall we run some numbers? I think I think definitely time to run some numbers. Do you have do you have box office information, Jake? I do. Yeah. So this only cost uh, seven million dollars to make, uh, which equates to about forty million today. It was the same budget as uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Seems like it's a the startup bond budget. I reckon they um, saved a lot of money by not paying Sean Connery five million dollars. Yeah, at the start. It would have been almost eighty percent of their budget. Jeez, he would have fought um, a cardboard box at the end. Yeah. So uh, seven million dollar budget. This went on to make thirty five million in the U.S., which is equivalent to one hundred ninety three million today. Uh, worldwide, it grossed one hundred sixty eight million dollars in nineteen seventy three. Which is about nine hundred and seven million today. So we're we're almost at billion dollar territory with the with this franchise still. Um, I think Thunderball is still the highest technically, but uh, yeah, no, uh, this was a real moneymaker. And while on Her Majesty's Secret Service was it still did well, it was a noticeable disappointment after five Connery films. This still proved Bond has legs no matter who plays him, and uh, Roger Moore uh, he's here to stay. For the time being, for sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, do you have okay. any deaths for us? And sorry, uh, do you have a death count for us? Oh, death or what count. Do you have? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, you cut out there just briefly. Uh, oh, yes, sure. Yes, let's absolutely run some numbers on who got killed and why. So that this this film actually presents some problems on that front, um, mainly Baron Samidi, because uh, I'm counting him as dying, but he isn't dead at the end. Uh, there was some talk that he was going to reappear, but he never does. I think if we counted uh, Blofeld dying in Diamonds Are Forever, I'm going to count Baron Samidi dying here. Uh, I'm also discounting any deaths in the airfield car crash sequences because honestly, those car crashes—they're a little gentle. I don't, I don't think. I think they walked away. I think they're doing yeah. okay. I have faith in in modern engineering. So I came out with a body count of nine. Uh, in this, which is pretty respectable, more than Lazenby killed uh, in his one outing, still far short of the record, which is still Thunderball with 21 kills, which I'm not sure when we're going to start matching that, uh, which brings us up to a total James Bond has thus far ruthlessly murdered 85 people. <laughs> and we're j- and we're just into really the second wave of Bond at this point. So, uh, good, good, strong start there. Um... Second numbers, of course, the women, the sexual encounters, because we have mm. to count this. Exactly. Uh, for, so so uh, Bond beds three women in this film, bringing his running total to 21. He truly is a one-man anti-feminist movement. Um, and they, it doesn't doesn't break the record for uh, From Russia With Love, which still... Still has four uh, encounters with with women. And Millie were still counted as a gypsy wedding that gave him two. Three seems to be the average in these movies. Uh, I I feel like they don't dare have any more. It would just start to interfere with the storyline. So three women. And age difference-wise, we are smashing records in this film. (laughs) Okay, so so just to clarify, prior to this, in in the just creepy annals of, of... of, of James Bond, the the records for age difference between Bond and the women who were supposedly deeply attracted to him, and um, Lana Wood with sixteen years between her and John uh, Connery in a in a Diamonds Are Forever, and in terms of in Bond girls that that Bond sleeps with in the film, the record still twelve years between him and Danielle Bianchi between Connery and Danielle Bianchi in, in From Russia with Love. 
We absolutely smashed that here. Roger Moore is three years older than Sean Connery to start with, and Jane Seymour is only 22 in this movie. She's one of the younger Bond girls, which gives us an age difference of 23 years between her and Roger Moore, which is very impressive. And he, she was a virgin, and he tricked her. Um, so there's there's a whole lot going on there. If you, I feel like there's. Oh, this is a t- I, let's not unpack that any further. Honestly, all of his encounters in this, he sleeps with Miss Caruso at the very start, with Rosie Carver, and then with Solitaire. All of the age differences here are between uh, 21 to, to 23 years or so, um, which is bigger than anything in any previous Bond film. So apparently they, look, they, they hired Roger Moore, who was a little bit older, and then decided to just go for younger women. Um so I don't know what exactly fueled that. But yeah, definitely a record setter on that. Uh, we have, uh, we're entering a whole new era of awkward for this. So, uh, I suppose yeah. with that, with that left over, um, God, I, I, I don't know. Uh, do we have any final thoughts, Jake? Anything else we've missed? Um, yeah, that about, that about does it for me, Adam. Uh, do you have anything you'd like to add? Do you enjoy your time on the For Your Ears Only podcast? Yeah, it's fun. I have a question. I, right. I noted that you said uh, sure. Bone was the previous year. Uh, was that – did they say that that was why he got this role? Did, was he cast off of his performance in Bone? And I think to go one step further, um, I, I'm blanking on the name of the director of Bone. Uh, Larry I'm Cohen. sure Larry you Cohen. know it. Larry Cohen. Larry Cohen, yeah. I believe, was one of the original choices to direct Live and Let Die. Oh, wow. So certainly, Yafit Koto could have been a carryover from Bone. That I would have don't... been an amazing yeah, film. I, I was yeah. intrigued by that, for, for certain. Yeah. Instead, yeah, I... uh, we, we didn't mention it, but this was directed by Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger and Diamonds Are Forever. Yes, this would be his third of four. He has one more James yeah. Bond movie in him. Uh, we yeah. Little, yeah, but... Um, yeah, yeah, I feel like, I, I don't know if it was Bone or, I know Koda had been, um, I think he'd already done, although maybe they came a little bit after, he was in stuff like uh, Friday Foster and Across 110th Street, I think maybe they did come a little after, but all those black exploitation films, that kind of, I don't know, was always weird in that, because honestly he, he's, he's such a kind of charismatic kind of, um, almost classically trained actor he kind of and I suppose they were in a lot of those black exploitation films but he always seemed I don't know just a little a little different to, to everyone else who was in there for some reason I didn't and got brought into this and didn't really uh didn't really have any chance to be anything more than just kind of a trope for bad villainy sure, sure. but yeah absolutely um so yeah, yeah, Adam, you should you should come back again. We got some we got some humdingers coming up. Here. I, <laughs> I don't know, octopusy, you know. Yeah, I think I, I do plan to join you guys a little later on, but probably once we get through this Roger Moore era. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say to the audience, understandable. Uh, yeah, check out Larry Cohn's Bone because it's a fantastic film, and uh, Yafet Kato is amazing in it. And we also discussed that previously in. Uh, Yes. The Outbackcast, episode 44. So you can go back and check that out. Oh, excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah highly check. recommend that film. And definitely, and it, I think it would serve as something of a ready counterpoint to this film. Um, definitely, definitely, these films were aimed at very different audiences, I think. But um, yeah, so um, I suppose with that, uh, Jake, where can you be reached? 
I'm at Jake Tropila on all the things. J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Uh, Adam, I believe you do not like to be found online, so we will uh, l- <laughs> leave you be. Just leave Adam. I can try. Be, uh, I can yeah. try. I don't make myself readily available. I'll say that. If you if you can track Adam down online, then he has to talk to you. That's basically the rule that we. That is the rule. Yeah, he's like he's like you get three wishes. That's it. that's, that's <laughs> if they it. want to get hold of me, they'd probably uh, be best served to just email us at optimismvaccine at gmail dot com. That's true. Well, Are you, you in charge of reading that? Uh, I thought we'd outsource that. Nobody reads that, but if we get, you know, I'll comb through it every once in a while. If someone's got, well, when I said it, when I said outsourced, that was pretty much what I went and meant. We do read our email, uh, dear listeners. Eventually, sometimes we forget for a little while, but we get yeah, to it eventually. You just got to remember to write to us, and we can read it. It's true, yeah, yeah. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you have any questions. Let us know if any James Bond gadget has been used for sexual shenanigans prior to the magnet watching this one. I can be reached, by the way, on Twitter at realjackeason.com if you want to uh, swear at me or tell me I'm doing a great job or tell me to shut up, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think that wraps it up for Live and Let Die, Jake. So what's coming next? Well, uh, for your ears only, we'll return with the man with the golden gun. Until then, take care and good night. Good night.